0: The Total Soccer Show and our latest foray into the listener questions mailbag. On today's show, we're asking if a European club could achieve a perfect season. We're questioning the nature of the throw-in, and we're debating Emma Hayes's potential starting eleven with the USWNT. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, answering your listener questions as always, Taylor Rockingwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello. Good to be here, my friend. Very good to have you here indeed. Taylor's expecting a delivery, everybody. wants everybody to know that. So if you hear a doorbell or a dog barking, that's what it is. Yes,
1: exactly. And you (laughs) will because the dogs are, are home and ready to go. It's their favorite thing to do is to bark
0: at a person who is innocuously here. Wonderful stuff. Uh, let's uh, let's leave in any doorbells or anything. Taylor, so the listener thinks it's their doorbell and it confuses them <laughs> as well. Maybe let's say, "Hey Siri," a few times as well, just to set things off. I do continue.
1: Uh, I do continue to have a file, a folder on my computer of just times the show is interrupted by dog barking, either my own
0: dogs or guest dogs. It,
1: it, it's a good one that I will never ever listen to, but somehow still feel the need to keep.
0: Who let them out? We'll never know. Joe Lowry also joining us. Hi, Joe. Hey Siri. Hey Siri. <laughs> Hey Siri Oh, I did it to my phone. There you go. That's that is so stupid.
1: Hey Siri, subscribe to Backheeled and yeah. Graham's <laughs> newsletter. Oh no, wait, I did it to mine now. Oh no,
0: this is failed. I uh, can't believe Abort, that just <laughs> Wonderful stuff, Joe. Also joining us, of course, Mr. Graham. Three showers a day, Ruthven. Hello, Graham. Don't question the logic, Ryan. Hello, how are you today? I am good. Can I call you tray from now on? Just, you know, three 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 uh three toothbrushings, three showers. Is that sure, okay? Why Trey? Not? Yeah, excellent. Sure. excellent. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Um, Are there any oils left on your skin at this point? Or are you just trying to <laughs> scold them off at any given opportunity with a shower?
2: Well, you see, with, with the amount of booze that I drink, that creates a lot <laughs> of uh, oil. So three showers is a reaction to that to, to get rid of the oil and the shame, as Taylor keeps reminding me. Wonderful stuff. Uh listener, if you advocate for
0: three showers and three toothbrushings a day, do let us know and we'll we'll find a, a special place for you with Graham as well. Guys, um <laughs> I don't know it is <laughs> as we record November twenty first. <laughs> uh this day de- on this day last year. Yeah. It was the day after our TSS Live in New York. It was this day one year ago but a day, Graham, as we record. It hardly
2: feels like a year ago, does it, huh? it doesn't i'm reeling from the fact that it's a full year since the tss live show since we were in brooklyn together for, for for the world cup a year ago today would have been the first proper day of yep. the of the world cup that was the, the usa's first game right against wales was the second day of the of the world cup i think wow and rich, uh, so yeah rich. i can't believe that's been a, a full year taylor i presume you're you're still going to cook us thanksgiving dinner again yeah, this year yeah. I, I was counting on it and if you are are you going to buy all the ingredients from Dollar General? Because that's uh, <laughs> their tradition, of course. I still have leftover ingredients from when I then
1: found that we had like an organic market three blocks away instead of the <laughs> Dollar General one block away. I don't know if I'll use the, the boxed sweet potatoes and yams. Mm. Uh, would you be surprised to know that I have on multiple occasions thought about how I could have done that meal better and how I'm not fully proud of no, doing not Thanksgiving justice for you all cuz yeah i felt like the chicken was a little stringy it was, a little great. Over-cooked. I it done was better. great i could
0: have done better it was great it was very it, it right was it. incredible as well your breakfast taylor i sometimes wake up in the morning and think i wish taylor was making me <laughs> like a you know a nice a nice waffle or something something with hops, hot sauce
2: there was a lot of hot sauce in that in apartment <laughs>
0: that is that is correct i i've been watching uh silicon
1: valley to then finish it cuz i never watched the final season and there's a scene when the guys show up like in in the morning for work having left the night before to sleep uh and and jared uh like stands up and is clearly not slept the entire time and has like crazy eyes and says where have you guys been and they quietly respond sleeping and he said what all night and that to me is (laughs) is us in a nutshell watch trying to watch seven (laughs) games a day uh in brooklyn
0: there we go fun times were had by all indeed listen if you'd like to catch up with it it's actually on youtube the entire show um if you really enjoy very badly record audio, <laughs> recorded audio, you can um, uh, watch that one all the way through. Uh, Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show for better recorded audio. One bonus year of the content. Patreon
2: as well. Oh 150 bonus episodes. Bonus episodes, I think, are on the Patreon now. 100 videos. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there now. Subscribe. Wow. A treasure trove. Thank you very much, Graham Rutherford. Bonus podcast, bonus videos,
0: access to the Discord, which is like a private Twitter for cool people. Patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show. They let us in there as well somehow. Doesn't quite (laughs) fit the the bill, but there we are. Uh, We've got plenty of listener questions and another website for you. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you would like to submit. Thank you very much to everyone who does. Not least, Mr. Samuel Parsons, who's been in touch and asked as a kid, who aspires to one day be a professional soccer manager. How should I study tactics? And should I only pick one to be my style of play or get to know all of them equally? I listen to you guys every day, says Samuel. Keep up the good work. Very kind of you, Samuel. Thank you very much. Joe Lowry, this feels like a Joe Lowry-esque question. So I suppose the the starting point is, does Samuel pick the most fashionable um, style of tactics now to get into it? Or, you know, go back for, to the very start, learn about the Hungarian WM 3232 formation in the 1930s. Get the
3: grounding there. What do you think? Somebody read the first chapter of Inverting the Pyramid. Ryan, I'm so proud of you. Actually, I, I still haven't read all of Inverting the Pyramid either, so I can't poke fun. Hey, Sam, first of all, I'm glad you're listening. This is super cool. You should do this. This is awesome. I hope it works out for you, and I hope you make lots of progress and enjoy it along the way. I'll start with this: learn about all the different styles. Learn about what they're trying to do, how they set up players to succeed, and and anything else you can learn along the way. So much of coaching at high levels is about setting your specific players up for success. That means you have to have a wide breadth of knowledge about the game. You can't necessarily just think about, okay, well, how does how does Manchester City play And, and do all their pretty possession stuff? There's other parts even to what they do, right? There is defending involved. There is counter-pressing involved. And there's overlap between what they do and even what more defensive, sort of prototypical defensive teams do. So learn learn about every aspect of the game. Learn about as much of this as you can. And you can do a lot of this from home to start with. And, and then I'll get to the next step after. Watch a bunch of games. Like that is the first thing I would recommend for you to do. And I'm sure you already are. If this is something that you're interested in doing with your career, I'm guessing you're already watching a lot of soccer. But watch a lot of games and don't watch the ball for a while. Instead, watch the structures of both teams. Watch how they interchange. Watch how they move and get a sense for a few of the things that each team is trying to accomplish on the field. Take some notes. This is going to help reinforce in your mind what you're seeing. I think we all do this on the show. We all do it in a slightly different way and for a different purpose than becoming a, a you know the next pep. But I think this will give you a lot of resources to work from, to call back from. You'll take some notes. That always helps you know lock things in. And then one other point of recommendation as far as things you can do from home that'll help you get a a nice wide knowledge about the game, at least in a sort of uh, behind the scenes kind of sense, is along with watching games, there are really good videos of coaches running training sessions on YouTube. And I think this is sort of making the jump from an educated soccer watcher, which I would say we all are, to actually being able to communicate the ideas that you want your team to have while being out there on the training field, that's difficult. That's a difficult jump to make, and knowing how to conduct a training session is a huge part of that. There's really good series. I found this and I watched a bunch of these a, a few years back. There's a great series from maybe ten years ago on Quick Goals YouTube channels. That's K W I K. There's one with Robin Fraser. It's an hour long instructional session from Robin Fraser, uh, RIP his time with the Rapids on, ded- on uh, sort of dictating the game without the ball. There's one about increasing speed of play. There's one about attacking and defensive transitions go out there and watch these sessions so you can get a feel for how coaches run their sessions because that's how players are getting these ideas. That's how they're going out and executing on the field. And then the last thing, if you're old enough in terms of things that I would recommend for you to do to go out and and do this, in addition to sort of studying tactics, you know, in in front of your TV or whatever it is, you can take coaching licenses. If you're under 18, you can take the online ones. And and when you turn 18, or maybe you already are, you can go and, and start on your D license and move through that whole process. So those are some things that I'd recommend, but definitely don't just sort of only watch possession teams that like to do stuff with the ball. Try to get as wide of a knowledge base as you can and then learn how to apply that knowledge and transmit it to players. Yep. I have a lot of overlap with what Joe said. Uh, two things I would add on, though. Number
1: one, I would say make sure you're also playing if you can. Um, I, I do think that's a huge part of coaching is being in the game state where you understand What's happening and also what the environment is like, what the stress can be like so that you then when you're coaching know how to kind of interact with the players, how to relay information, how to relate to them in a stressful situation. I think sometimes if you haven't played, not even playing at a high level, but just playing in general, I think it just becomes a little bit about X's and O's and do this and then this and then this will happen and and you do have to have a little bit of that in game knowledge I think or maybe more than a little bit to just understand how things actually play out and how they can play out and what some of the reactions might be uh, when your fullback punts the ball into the stands for no reason <laughs> I don't know if that's gonna help you but I, at the very least giving getting some like on field experience is good and then I think in a more like theoretical way, embracing the philosophy of coaching and the like philosophy behind soccer, I think is is really useful because I think being able to understand why someone's doing something, what the idea behind this strategy is, why are they doing this tactical approach is, is as important as understanding how to understand the tactics and make them happen because I think so much of tactical evolution comes from this is the prevailing idea of how you have to play, of what the best formation is, and if you can sort of examine that pull out information that allows you to exploit the vulnerabilities and then play your own way. That's how progress happens. And I think that's the greatest leaps in footballing history over the years have been people looking at prevailing sentiment, prevailing ideas and finding new ways to to play against them or, or sort of new ways of thinking. And and I think that that is so important as much as understanding tactics and what this does and how this plays. Being able to understand the reasons behind it, I think, is pretty critical.
0: Yeah. So, Samuel, um, take all that advice on board and one day, maybe you'll make the decision to play Kai Havertz left back. Uh, you never know. <laughs> um, Joe, can I come back to you and ask about... Um, When you said, like, watching the game, when you're sitting watching the game, try and don't watch the ball. Can I ask about you personally? Do you ever switch off from that? Do you ever sort of sink into the Mm. sofa and you just kind of enjoy the game, just watch the ball and just sort of, you know, take it at a very top-line level? Are you always looking for the lines? Are you always looking for off-the-ball movement and such?
3: Yeah, I I will turn it off. It's difficult to do that, and it's difficult sort of for me now to just sort of enjoy a game more casually, but I, I can still do that, and even for some shows, right? So for some weekend review stuff where if I know... You know, we're not going to end up spending 45 minutes talking about a single game because there's just not enough time. Like, we don't have the ability to do that for every game that deserves it. There are times that I'll say, okay, I'm just going to enjoy this one for fun. Or maybe a Champions League game is a better example because we'll go into a couple in-depth that I'll know what those games are likely going to be. And then we can ease off on a few of the others and have a little bit more... fun is not the right word because I do enjoy kind of digging into the weeds but I guess you know people kind of get what I mean have a bit more fun with it so yeah I guess it it kind of alternates depending on the setting okay Graham any insight here
0: Uh, any mention of football manager or anything like that (laughs)
2: Football manager, is, is in my uh, my notes, I don't have any, I know this will, will come as a surprise, but I don't have any real world experience of uh, professional soccer management, but I have led Sterling Albion to the Champions League, and obviously I'm joking a, a little bit there, but Will Still, who is the, the REM manager, he's 31 years old, he's a league and manager, he's been a league and manager for two seasons now, he credits football manager with giving him a good start, so... While I'm I'm not suggesting that you're going to get a big five European job on the back of uh, taking Sterling Albion to the Champions League, I'm still waiting for that call. I think a lot of the there is a, there is some, some tactical groundwork there that you can you can learn from stuff like Football Manager. I agree with everything that has been said already regarding like coaching badges and watching a lot of videos. I think the practical stuff is really important as well. I think Taylor was kind of touching on that. Where I spoke to a friend who is in coaching. And he said that as well as going through your badges and doing all the theory there, you should really be working with a team on a weekly basis, where the the stakes are maybe a little bit lower. If you're starting with a youth group or just an amateur team, you can kind of work out some stuff on your own. But you want to be you want that repetition of 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 you know learning things from your coaching badges or whatever, and then putting them into real world practice. And also that's where you'll you'll start to learn people skills because management isn't purely about tactics and positioning players on the pitch that's an important part of it but the best managers are, are people who know how to manage people and so i don't think you can really learn how to do that on football manager or, mm. or on videos you will at some point need repetition in a real world scenario
0: That's very true, Graham. Very good point there. Graham Rutherland, who told us before recording he hasn't left the house in three days, telling us about people (laughs) skills is uh, vital there. Thank you very much indeed. Samuel, that's a great question. Thank you very much. We hope that helped. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Emma Hayes' upcoming USWNT team. Back shortly.
3: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before?
0: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. We go now to a listener question from Sharday Johnson, who says, what will be Emma Hayes's USWNT starting 11? Ooh, Taylor, a very hotbed question here, given that interim coach Twyla Kilgore has picked a squad for the upcoming December friendlies against China, and there have been some big changes there already. Do we foresee even bigger changes when Emma Hayes comes in? First of all, Sade, uh, I love Smooth Operator. Thank you for your
1: question. Uh, As to the question itself, I have a hard time with it, and I I have a feeling Joe will have more concrete thoughts than I, uh, because I'm still confused about who is actually calling in these players while Emma Hayes continues to manage Chelsea. Uh, Joe was on that press conference uh, when they kind of talked out this roster, and it sounds, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, like it's basically if Emma Hayes wants somebody on the team, they will be on the team. Is that more or less it?
3: Yeah, the, I think the, the term collaboration was used mm-hmm. several times. There's still a lot of mystery. There, there's frankly a lot of mystery in, in a lot of the transition between now and the end of the WL season, which is when Hayes will take over full-time as the USWNT manager. Uh, we don't really know exactly how much input she's having. We don't really know exactly how much work she's doing behind the scenes. And we don't really know when she's going to show up to some of these camps, even as an observer. But yes, Taylor, it does seem to me like Hayes has. And, and Twilight Kilgore made sure to communicate this. Like she is, in some way, a participant in building these squats, mm-hmm. And so I think I
1: take that into account when I look at this roster, which would be her first since the announcement was made. Um, when we talk about Emma Hayes, we talk about flexibility. We've talked about this previously with her appointment and on The Big Thing. We did a whole uh, episode about her tactics, her history, and then what we think the U.S. might look like with her in charge, but flexible uh can play in a back three can play in a back four likes crosses from wide attackers and from fullbacks oftentimes goes with a four three three but it can be a three four two one wants number eights sort of arriving late uh striker can either stay central and and win balls in the air if you have sam kerr if you don't then they can be a little bit more mobile and and help with crossing center backs who are good on the ball launch vertical attacks pretty effectively and that last one made me think, I wonder if we'll see Abby Dahlkemper on this team. And lo and behold, we do. She's called back in. uh, And I I think about Abby Dahlkemper as a strong center back who is also so good with those long vertical balls, those long diagonal balls. And I think her being back in the team suggests that that is a thing that Emma Hayes really likes. So though she is 30, I think there's still plenty of time for her. So I feel like Abby Dahlkemper could be a player that will be in that
3: starting 11. Joe, do you have thoughts
1: on, if it is Dahlkemper, who you'd like to partner her?
3: Naomi Gurma is the the number one center back between now and probably another decade from now. So I think you start, honestly, with this team building from the back, you start with Gurma and fill in the other pieces around Gurma.
1: Okay. What about in goal? Because we've got... Three new names. We don't have a listener involved in this camp. Maybe we will once again, but this also felt significant and also felt like a good reminder of why we wanted Emma Hayes in the first place, to change things up. Casey Murphy is the most experienced of the goalkeepers, then Jane Campbell, then Aubrey Kingsbury. I don't really know enough about any of them, to feel like this one should definitely have the gig. I'm mostly just excited to see anybody get an opportunity. No disrespect to Alyssa Nair, but it does feel like it's time to see who else is out there. Uh Joe, do you have any feelings on that one?
3: Yeah, I would I would agree on the Nair point. It's a bit confusing for this squad and, and hard to say mm-hmm. what it means going forward because Nair, Alex Morgan, both not in the team. And I think on merit, that's pretty justified at this point in their careers. But then Crystal Dunn, also not in the team. And I think it's pretty hard to view her as anything else but a really valuable member of this team. So it's hard to read too much into some of these omissions or absences or whatever you want to call it. But that being said, these aren't really new goalkeepers for the U.S. We've seen James Campbell, Aubrey Kingsbury, Casey Murphy all in camp before. They've all played games. Kingsbury, not a a ton, but they've all gotten caps in the past. The one name that I'm just waiting to see, and I, I thought we might see it in this camp if Hayes really was maybe calling some of the shots with a fresh perspective is Katie Lund, who has been racing Louisville's starting goalkeeper, not the highest, you know, profile team in the NWSL, but she has been the best shot stopper in the league for two years running now. I, I don't understand how she hasn't sniffed the national team yet. It doesn't make sense to me. She's been the best player in, in the league. Like the best goalkeeper at her the best player at her position in the entire league. So on my list, on my actual lineup of, of what I think Hayes could do. That I built before this roster was out. Katie Lund is is the goalkeeper in there because if you're trying to come in and be a bit of a disruptor, like don't stick with the status quo. Go find someone else who can do the job better. And I think we have enough evidence now that that strongly suggests Katie Lund can do the job better.
1: Uh, so there you go, Joe wants Katie Lund. I, I think that's the uh, the TLDR on that one. Uh, I think we're going to get some experimentation at fullback. I won't be surprised if we continue to see Crystal Dunn play there on occasion. Maybe she'll play more centrally, but that feels like something that fans were hoping for and we're, and we're thinking could be a possibility with Emma Hayes coming in and it is, but I still think if you want fullbacks who can get forward and be attacking and put in crosses, I feel like that could well end up being Crystal Dunn, but Emily Fox seems like a, a prime candidate to get a lot of minutes and, um, The midfield gets a little more confusing for me again because I think it's we go back to kind of the age old question of who should be the number six, who's most capable of being that number six. We thought maybe Julie Ertz would give us some temporary reprieve, but she ends up being a center back for the World Cup. So I think that number six spot remains a question. Um, My guess would be that Lindsey Hiran and Rose Lavelle continue to be the other two midfield starters there. Um, Joe, Emily Sonnet listed as a midfielder for this roster. Would you like to see her try it out as that number six or is there another more obvious candidate?
3: Well, she's done it a few times now for mm-hmm. the U S not, not as a lone number six, but we saw it in the world cup. We've seen it since the world cup. She's played in a double pivot for OL rain. She is comfortable in that role. I think she's also very limited in that role. I, I don't think the U S are going to be at their best when Emily Sonnet is starting for this team. I think she can add value in a squad. As a rotation piece, she can play anywhere across the back line at a, at a competent level, can play in midfield, and had some good moments for O.L. For Reign, but doesn't really allow you to do some of the expansive stuff that U.S. Soccer Sporting Director Matt Crocker was kind of banging on and on about in the press conference yesterday, talking about how they want the U.S. to be a possession-based team. He said that two or three times, and I didn't get a chance to ask a question, but I wanted to ask him, like, is is Emma Hayes the manager to do that? Because that hasn't really been her mo against good teams at the very least. And we already know the U.S. are going to dominate the ball against bad teams, right? So I, I'm fascinated to see what this era looks like. It is still a bit murky and exactly what the the midfield group looks like under Hayes is still super murky as well. I've got a lineup, but I'll, I'll wait till after you're you're done going through the positions, Taylor. Um, I mean, you're I I,
1: I seem to be deferring to you for your lineup mostly just because I feel like I don't fully know what Emma Hayes is going to want to do with this team. Like Jenna Neiswanger is another one. She's listed as a midfielder, but can be, I think a, a forward back. can also be a fullback. Yeah. And I remember in the uh, NWSL final, her service was a thing that stood out to me from the left back spot, how good she was playing balls down the line, but then making overlaps, making underlaps, uh, playing smart passes through the middle. She's a player I really like and am and, and excited to see in this roster. She has yet to make a cap for the U.S., but she's one who I think could play a number of different positions and help elevate the overall team. So I don't know if I have her in my starting 11, but she's one that I'm going to say, yeah, let's put her in. I'm going to put her at left back. Why not? We'll see what happens. Um, up top, it feels like it's Sophia Smith and Trinity Rodman for now. Midge Purse making a-, a compelling argument as well. I think I would go with somebody maybe slightly more conventional through the middle. So I don't know if that's Trinity Rodman at this point or if that's that's Lynn Williams with this roster. Uh, but that that's one where I also... I'm excited to see what this team does over the next year or so, how they utilize that position. Is it sort of trying to do Sam Kerr things? Uh, And if so, who's most capable of doing that? Or do you change it up and play a little bit more practical with the players that you have? Uh, I think there's a lot of question marks about how this team could play. And I think all of that is why I I struggle to come up with an 11 that I feel like this is the way it should be. This is how she's going to play. I think there's tons of talent here, obviously, uh, but Emma Hayes, herself is is pretty talented and has a pretty good head on her shoulders and I think is going to be practical in how she evolves this team and evaluates the talent and I think we will see a logical evolution is my greatest hope for the 11 we end up seeing.
3: Yeah it's it's not clear say to answer Sade to to answer your question it's not easy to go out and and figure out what this group's gonna look like because Emma Hayes did a bunch of different stuff with Chelsea like it, it was hard to imagine seeing the same a positional alignment in one game and then seeing the same one the next game, right? We, we just didn't get a whole lot of that out of her Chelsea team. She played mostly with two strikers with Chelsea, also did a, four, a fair bit of 4-2-3-1. Taylor, you kind of spoke to some of that flexibility formation-wise. She's not going to have Sam Kerr anymore. And really, it seemed to me that a lot of Chelsea's possession play was built around having Sam Kerr as the focal point. And when you don't have that, I don't, I genuinely don't know how that changes things. So I think center back is still a big question mark next to Naomi Gurma, especially if you're going for a back three. I really actually enjoy seeing Emily Fox play as a right-sided center back in a back three and Gurma, maybe Dahl is the third member of that, but I, I haven't seen Dahl play a full season of soccer because she hasn't done so in two years, right? So it, there's a lot of questions around what this team is going to look like. I built sort of a four-two-three-one roster if everybody's healthy. And I'm sort of looking forward to the Olympics. Maybe this is what we're going to see, but I think we've, we've sort of hemmed and hawed enough to communicate that there's way more questions than there are answers, even while still having a mostly positive sentiment around what the team is. Uh, Graham, a name I don't
0: think we've mentioned yet is Alex Morgan, who took some of the headlines for not making the most recent squad. Do we see yeah. her making any of these teams going forward or is a a gentle phase out what do we feel like is it is this a is this bad news for the old guard essentially this change of coaching
2: Uh, Yeah, I think it probably is generally, broadly speaking, bad news for the old guard because Emma Hayes has surely been brought in as an outsider, a a fresh pair of eyes to lead the the U.S. into, to complete that transition into a new generation. I wouldn't completely rule out Alex Morgan being an important figure under Emma Hayes. I think it's the right time to try something new, but we've just spoken about how Emma Hayes likes that focal and attack and Alex Morgan, despite the fact she is into the twilight of her career now, Um, is that player. And there aren't many other players in the pool that can do what she does. Obviously, there are talented attackers, and I would like to see Sophia Smith given a a chance through the middle, and Trenty Rodman can obviously play there. But they're very different types of attackers to Alex Morgan. So I I, I think Emma Hayes, there's going to be a process of experimentation with Emma Hayes in charge. Alex Morgan, I think it's... I think Sophia Smith and Rodman and other, other players are going to have the opportunity to state their claim first, but I wouldn't rule out Alex Morgan also having a chance to to stake a claim. I'm going to very quickly run you through my lineup, um, because I've put I've tried to put some names into a team. Uh, Katie Lund was my goalkeeper. That's that kind grand. of felt like throwing darts at, at, at a wall. So I feel some vindication that Joe mentioned uh, her. There's a few positions where I'm throwing darts around, so it's actually right down the centre of the spine of the team. It's goalkeeper, it's centre-back, it's the number six, and then I guess to a lesser extent, the centre-forward. Sophia Smith is my centre-forward. We all know who she is, but nonetheless, there's a question mark there. So my centre-backs, I've gone for Naomi Gurman and and, and Alana Cook. Uh, Dal Camper is also on my radar, but I think Gurman and Cook have have shown signs of a partnership in the past. Crystal Dunn at left-back. She's not in this roster, but that's where Hayes played her for Chelsea. Um, Hayes signed Crystal Dunn for Chelsea, so you'd assume that she's a fan of of Crystal Dunn. Emily Fox at right-back. I'm throwing another dart at the wall here but uh, because the midfield is where things get a little bit difficult. But as my number six, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Jalen Howell could be an option in there as a bit of a midfield destroyer to provide some balance behind Lindsay Iran and Rose Lavelle. I think Emma Hayes is really going to like Rose Lavelle, having her as kind of the, the Fran Kirby in the team. And then the attack is where it gets a little bit easier because the U.S. have real options there. Mar- Mallory Swanson, of course, coming back from, from injury. Uh, Trinity Rod Rodman, Midge Purse on the right side. I think will be competing for for that position. Then Sophia Smith, as my number nine, but interchanging with Rodman primarily, so that maybe Rodman's in central positions at times, and Smith is drifting out to the right. So that's the. Obviously, we're we're like six months out from Emma Hayes taking this job. It's all speculation at this point. There'll be injuries. The Olympics creates kind of different parameters as well. But that is my best shot at guessing a, a semi-medium to long-term lineup. All right. Thank you very much for the question, Sadi. Let's go to
0: Mark Janssen, who says, with the retirement of Michael Bradley, maybe even before, does the lack of high profile American players in MLS pose a problem? And who is the highest profile American crime MLS player? Is it Jordan Morris? Is it Jesus Ferrer? Et cetera, And so on. Graham, I yep. would suggest maybe it's a good thing that high profile American players mm. maybe are thriving on the continent instead.
2: Well, it'll be Lucho Acosta when his U.S. citizenship That's uh, in my comes through,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> which I uh, haven't heard anything on that in a while. But I think that process is still ongoing. Of course, the the front runner for the M- for MVP in MLS this season, I think it probably is Jesus Ferreira uh, as the the highest profile American player in MLS right now. I guess you could argue Jordan Morris or maybe Miles Robinson, given that he's in the picture for a, a like a starting spot for the USMNT, and maybe the other three aren't. I know Jesus Ferreira has been in the past, but right now it feels like battle against the number nine, and it's Ricardo Pepe. I don't think it's a problem for MLS as such. I just think it's a statement on where the USMNT cycle is at the moment. So I remember when Seattle signed Clint Dempsey, There was this drive across the league to sign big-name American players, and that's about the time that Michael Bradley comes back from from Italy to go to TFC. I think that will happen again. It's not necessarily that MLS has progressed past that point, although there's an element of that. But after 2018, an entire cycle of the US men's national team ended with that failure to qualify for the World Cup. And then the team for 2022 is the youngest team the U.S. Have ever sent, has ever sent to a Men's World Cup. And so these guys are at the point of their career where they're going to Europe and all the best players are playing in European teams and the young guys are going to, to, to European leagues as well. I think that'll come back round again and these guys will come back out the other side of their careers and hopefully they'll have had a, a decent amount of success in Europe and experience in Europe and they'll have proven themselves in, 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 in the best leagues in the world. And then I think out oh, the other side, MLS clubs will will be interested again. So I think until MLS becomes one of the best leagues in the world, I'm talking like a big five league in the world, that's always going to be the cycle and the situation. And it's just about waiting for that to come back round again, I think. Taylor, do you concur? Yep, I, I do indeed. I would say I want MLS to be
1: basically like a red flag relationship of uh, early 20s and then mid to late 30s. Th- there you go. That's the age ranges I'm comfortable playing in Major League Soccer. I do think right now, Look at a country like Brazil, you're sending your, your best players, even when they're very young, abroad to play for the best teams and the best leagues. And then you're keeping some domestic talent, you're keeping some young talent, and then you're keeping veterans coming back and who can still have an impact in the league, make their individual team and maybe the league overall better, and still potentially have an impact for the national team. That makes the most sense to me with Major League Soccer. I understand where the question is coming from, though, because I think it's not a problem for me. I don't think it's a problem for the U.S. national team that there are so few high-profile players in the league. It might be a problem for the league to some extent. I think they do want to have some marketable names from the national team in the squad or uh, playing for Major League Soccer teams. But... I don't really know who that is right now. I don't know who would make the most sense. I don't know if there's anybody that I would love coming back or coming to Major League Soccer at this point in their careers when we look at that starting 11. So for me, I think I'm pretty comfortable with how things are, but I am interested as there's more money, as there's more development, as there's more young players coming through, eventually I think you will have more young players, playing better soccer at a higher level in Major League Soccer before they make that move. At least that's my hope. Uh, but for now, I don't think it's that big of an issue. And I think to the second part of the question, it's probably Jesus Ferreira. Jordan Morris is probably like the, the name that most casual U.S. fans would know. Uh, but I'm not sure if that makes him the highest profile at present. But yeah, Jordan Morris, Jesus Ferreira. I would say Brandon Vasquez maybe on that list for me right now. But it's not a long list for sure.
0: Joe, your thoughts on this one? Perhaps it's um, perhaps the lack of American high-profile American players is a marketing problem for MLS, but mm. a good thing for the program in general.
3: Yep, I think that's exactly right. I basically have that exact thing in my notes. It's not ideal for, M- for MLS not to have a Michael Bradley or Josie Altidore level player within the US pool in their league. I do agree, though. I don't think it's impossible that we see some of these first-generation young stars who came in sort of right around or after the the failure to qualify in 2018, come back and play in Major League Soccer in another six years, or may- maybe a little bit less, or whatever it's going to be. Pulisic and-, and Western McKinney right now is 25, right? Some of these players are are going to get through the primes of their careers, and they'll come back, and maybe they do something similar to what previous players have done before them. MLS does miss out on a marketing opportunity by not having some of these guys in the league. The U.S., from a- an-, an MNT perspective, are certainly better off for having them at, at higher levels. But really, if you're Major League Soccer, when you started leaning into being more of a selling league for some of these young players, you knew what you were doing, right? And this was always going to be a trade-off that you were making by leaning into trying to more organically find and develop and move on talent to then become a more appealing destination for the next level of talent who want to go and play at the highest levels and slowly and slowly snowballing into something bigger. That's the choice you made when you decide to move Miguel Almiron to Newcastle, when you decide to move Alfonso Davies. That's the decision. And I think it was the right one for Major League Soccer. And I'm not really sure... It's the easiest thing to do both to have the veteran, you know, star US players in your league because they don't really want to play there and to go out and do what MLS has done at the same time. So, overall, I think MLS made this choice and it was probably the right choice for them. I'm just looking through the, the the USMNT roster here to try and predict who might be
2: who might when that cycle comes back around who might um, come back to MLS or move to MLS. One player that we maybe have overlooked, um, I think Walker Zimmerman might be in the discussion of high-profile um, USMNT mm. players. Started at the World Cup not so long ago, of course, big important player for for Nashville, but maybe like. Uh, oh, this is it's slim pickings to try and predict who's who like Zach Steffen, maybe coming back to to, to Columbus or to, yeah, to MLS? But
3: but I do I think it's possible, Graham. I think that's totally valid. But I that doesn't answer the question, right? Like that's that's not at the level of player that I think sure. Mark is, is asking about. And so to your point, it's really hard to predict. Like I think it's possible that Polisic and McKenny and Adams at some point when their career is is starting to fade, do end up in Major League Soccer and they're still very productive players in the league. But there's not really a personality type that you look at and say, "Okay, this is the guy to come in and and kind of come back to Major League Soccer. Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much indeed for the question, Mark. We're going to take a quick break. When we
0: come back, we're talking PSV Eindhoven. We're talking about language barriers and, of course, lifting your leg up when you do a throw in back shortly.
1: This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham and Joe. Just kidding.
0: Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Ben Sundstrom has been in touch. Hello, Ben. Ben asks, could PSV Eindhoven become the first club in a European league to win every single game and have a perfect season? Uh, Joe, they've had 12 wins from 12, 40 scored, and five conceded. Could they win every single game and have a perfect season?
3: No. Should we move on? Yeah, (laughs) that is the correct answer. It's an incredible start to the year for PSV. It really is. In the league, they're not perfect in in international competition, but... They've had a very strong season. So to, to look back at some teams that have done this before, Barcelona and Juventus' as women's teams have done this. They've, they've had perfect seasons, winning every league game along the way. Apparently, some men's clubs in Europe have done this in the past too, uh, but not in 80 years or so, according to my research. So PSV would certainly be the first to do it in the modern era in Europe, other teams in other places, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But PSV would be the first. They're not going to do this, though. I guess it's technically possible, but it is oh so unlikely. I looked into some of the betting odds coming up. They only have a fifty-three point five percent chance to beat third place twenty on the road in their next game. Like, if you only have a fifty-three point five percent chance to win the next game, forgetting even about all the other league games after that, <laughs> you're not likely to make this happen. Fine are very good in the Eredivisie. Twenty are very good. Uh, AZ are, are good, and they play one of those teams, or or uh, or yeah, one of those three teams, Fine or Twenty or AZ, in each of their next four league games. So I'm guessing this is probably going to be done at some point in the next four games but PSV I'm pulling for you I want this to happen you know do do the thing guys you can do this I mean Graham it's
0: even difficult to do an invincible season like Arsenal did back in was it 2003 I want to say 2002 2003 around then but um, about that same yeah yeah so going a season without a loss is hard enough but winning every game feels as Joe says the odds are stacked extraordinarily strongly against a team
2: I just think even when you have an utterly dominant team in a league over a thirty-six game season, and that's one thing to note, Joe mentioned teams that have done this before like eighty years ago, this is at a time when league seasons are something like sixteen games long and they're they're nowhere near as long as they are now. You certainly don't have European and commitments and cup commitments and there aren't as many fixtures and, and, and so on. So I just think even where you have an utterly dominant team in a league, in a 36-game season, there's going to be a chaos match or a bad refereeing decision or a deflection or, or something like that. And in Scotland, we have, we've come closer to a team achieving a perfect season than maybe any other league in the world because in recent seasons, we've had Celtic, who have been so utterly dominant over Rangers, and even when they have been just strolling to titles, um, there's always they've had invincible seasons. They had an invincible season under Brendan Rodgers, but there's still a draw in an old firm game or a draw away to Livingston where there's a bad 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 refereeing decision or something like that. So I, I just don't think I'll ever see a perfect season in, in a big European league. There will always be a chaos factor. Well, oh, don't say that, Graham. You'll see it one day, bud. We believe in you. Um, <laughs> thanks, Taylor. Thanks, right Do
0: we think a, a perfect season is more likely or a season of uh, a team having uh, a game abandoned every week in the Eredivisie is more likely?
1: You know what? They're going to do it. In your face, guys! Ooh. Have some belief. Seven points clear of second place. Forty-five. How goals you four, believed that as well. Five when you, against. You yeah, said. I, don't, I don't. I don't really believe it, but <laughs> I want to believe. I want to believe because uh, it would be a fascinating story. I think they've got uh, Feyenoord coming up on December second, away. That will be a pretty big hurdle because Feyenoord currently. Second, uh, I think FC Twente are only 22 points behind them, excuse me, but it really has just been PSV running away with it. So that will be an interesting hurdle for them to get past. But to Graham's point, I think over the course of a lengthy season, I feel like it's going to be a random team get to draw at some point, especially if PSV gets out of the Champions League group or even if they go into the Europa League and then make a run. I feel like at a certain point, you've sort of got the title locked up. You're going to rotate, you're going to rest players if you want to stay alive in either domestic cup competitions or in whatever European competition you might be involved in. And I could see them maybe just taking their eye off the prize a little bit. But with that said, the 45 goals four and five against is a number that really did sort of raise my eyes a little bit. And especially when you look at, I think their recent win over Ajax was five to two. So two goals for Ajax. Now you've like removed that game. 3 against for the entire season and that's that's not a small feat. So I think it's a really interesting question and I'm I think it's going to be fascinating to pay attention to. Similar to last year when we had the two teams, uh one in Serie A, one in La Liga that neither which of which had won, and we got the question about which team will win first or which team will go the longest without winning. It's another great question because even if we can't really give an answer, uh it's a thing to keep an eye on and will make me excited to continue to watch the Dutch yeah. season this year.
2: Well, it's, it's because they've signed all the Americans, right? That's why they're running away with the, their mm. division title. For sure. Uh, For sure. I mean, I mean, they,
1: plenty of jokes about that's why Dest did what he did uh, in the second leg against Trinidad. It's because he. He like looked at He's the pitch, committed. looked at the situation, and thought, like, "Nah, I want to keep the perfect season alive. I'm punting this ball <laughs> out of bounds and heading home." Well, for course, the team, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, that's the theory. They have they have been very impressive this season. I thought PSV were a- were a bit foolish to get rid of. I'm not sure if they sacked him or if he left. But Van Nistelrooy leaving last season felt like a bolt out of the blue because he'd been relatively successful there, but. Peter Bosch has, has taken this team to the next level and I've watched a bit of them in the in the Champions League. They've not been quite as impressive in the Champions League, but nonetheless, I think they're second in their group. Yeah. They've got a good yep. chance of going through to the last 16 and Joey Verman has been very good. Uh, Johan Bakayoko, I, I predict he's not going to be there for much longer. I have a feeling that a Premier League club is going to come in for him in January. He's been very impressive. Chucky Lozano, who I know there's been some MLS rumours about him this yep. week, but he seems to be doing well at psv and back in the eredivisie uh and they have they have luke de jong who is a Air Divisie flat track bully they play him for crosses and set pieces and he is very effective at that. So they they are they are a strong team, and of course with with Pepe and, and Tillman and, and Des, they've you know they've got a bit of depth as well. So a, a perfect season, I don't think, is within reach. But I certainly think at this point they're the front runners for the title.
0: Graham, you say you've been watching some Eredivisie teams in Europe this season. Maybe if you didn't shower so much, you could watch a match of Eredivisie. Have you ever thought about that? You could have watched all twelve <laughs> games if you didn't shower so often. <laughs>
2: <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, also, I don't think they're on TV in the UK, but the shower thing's the biggest
0: obstacle. Yeah, know <laughs> the excuses,
3: Graham, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, enough, not, enough. it's not a good
2: look.
0: <laughs> ben, thank you for that question. We go now to Clay Wagner. Let's say Clay Wagner because North Americans don't always pronounce their names correctly. That's another thing altogether. Uh, is the language barrier ever a major issue for European clubs? Are translators typically on staff for training and matches? Taylor, ding, ding, ding. Ryan's got some insight that he recently learned on this one. <laughs> Would you like to hear it?
1: Is it that your German-centric <laughs> pronunciation is troubling?
0: For a German name? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: Go ahead. So, All right,
2: dead it, Ray.
0: I, <laughs> I happened to be at an event last week mm-hmm. with uh, Christian Pulisic's parents, uh, to whom I was chatting. Uh, Mark Pulisic, daddy of Christian, mentioning how Stefano Pioli... Has a translator sitting next to him in the dressing room for all games, who translates into English for mm. those who wish to learn his thoughts in English. So there's a director uh, and I bit of insight for you there. He loves having to have that happen,
1: Stefano Pioli. I think coaches mm. get pretty frustrated with that one. Uh, is my understanding. I will say this in my experience and my underst- and my like knowledge, either as a player, but then also from the teams I support. I think it can actually be beneficial to have that language barrier on occasion. Cause I think it simplifies conversations. I, I think you learn how to kind of have score. Very sure. Or, or just like pass. like faster. Faster. <laughs> or like oh like I think there there becomes a sort of shorthand vernacular that that you can learn. I had this in Turkey where we would have uh like the pickup game that I played twice a week was just whoever showed up, but it was tons of different nationalities speaking tons of different languages and a lot of the time it was just very sort of like broken conversation but you learn how to play off of each other and how, and who does what well and I think it also limits some of the conflict you're likely to have because I think people are going to be more hesitant to start screaming at each other when they don't understand what's happening so I think in that way it can be useful and a strange example of this when they were all at Manchester United the the best friends trio does anyone remember the best friends trio no it's fair enough nope. uh carlos tevez patrice ever and g sung park none of whom spoke the same language like i think like one or two of them would speak one language one or two would speak another but they were all like best buddies and hung out all the time and there are plenty of videos of them like there's one of them sitting on a couch together and they look like young children and they're kind of like giggling but none of them really communicate back and forth it just seems like they exist off of vibes and enjoying the it's energy. It's
2: like the Carlos uh, Beckham thing from the Beckham documentary. Yeah, neither of them could speak each other's exactly. language, but they ended up friends. Yeah,
1: I, I think like when there is a when you're kind of thrown into that cauldron, I think just sort of like a friendly atmosphere is appreciated. And so I think to some extent, language is certainly important, but I think you can get past it, especially when like football. I think allows you to speak a common language pretty quickly. That was. Again, like this is anecdotal evidence, but for me in Turkey, I learned soccer terminology and I learned food and then I learned cursing, which is the thing that everybody learns the the first. Uh, But you pick that stuff up and it does allow you to kind of have conversations and it becomes a little bit intuitive. So I think to some extent, it it isn't that big of an obstacle. I think oftentimes when you have translators around, in my experience, it's for media. It's so that players can be interviewed and players don't have to make awkward comments in in a language they don't speak and then they end up saying the wrong thing. And I think you can have it with managers as well. You'll have it sometimes with players in training. But I think for the most part, training is meant to be sort of do it for a couple reps and you pick up what's happening. And if you don't, well, then maybe you're not paying attention. So I think it can be a barrier, but I think it's not as big of one as you might think.
3: I I didn't expect Taylor's take on this to be actually communicating with each other as bad. And I didn't expect my response to that take to actually sort of be agreement after you finished (laughs) your point. That's not where I thought this was going to go at all. But I think there's a lot of validity in what you're saying, Taylor. And and ultimately, I think we would agree at the big picture level here, which is that the language barrier is almost never a problem. Like, not just in Europe, right? This is a thing that happens all around the world of players from different nationalities who don't necessarily speak the same language. I have... It's difficult to recall instances where this blows up in someone's face and there's a huge issue because you can't communicate either because, and to use Milan's case, they'll go in and bring in a, a, a translator so that Pioli can give detailed tactical instructions to his players in a way that makes sense or... Because all these players, what they do with their lives, like this is their everyday life, is going and playing in a country and then three years later moving to a different country, learning a new language because they have so much free time as a professional soccer player. You train in the morning and you go to the gym and it's like three hours done and then you have your entire rest of the day to do whatever you want. Like that is the cadence of being a soccer player. You are swimming in free time and you end up with – with you know, smart players like Romelu Lukaku coming out and knowing six or eight languages. And Michael Bradley is another example. He speaks a bunch of different languages. Played in Scandinavia, played in, um, excuse me, played in a number of different places, including Italy, like speaks Italian. These players learn languages. And so if you think about a team, uh, Man City, we we can pick Man City as an example. Bernardo Silva is Portuguese. He knows Portuguese, obviously. He knows English as well. Like I've heard him speak English in interviews at a very capable level he could go and help Phil Foden and Aderson if they didn't speak the opposite language. And he could be the translator. So clubs don't always have to bring in people to do this job. In certain situations, it might make sense. But overall, I don't think it's ever really a problem. Yeah. And Graham, I think
0: anecdotally, we hear over the years, lots of players, um, this is going to sound like a joke, but coming to Scotland, who, who don't mm. quite understand the way the English is spoken there as well. And like players who played for Sir Alex Ferguson yeah. who say they didn't understand anything he said, which is,
2: you know, Fair. Yeah, a lot of people coming from the rest of the UK to Scotland and then needing <laughs> a translator in Glasgow. Uh, the, the ones, the managers that have needed translators always stick in my mind. So I remember the language barrier thing being mentioned when Unai Emery was at Arsenal because at that time his English wasn't that great. I think a bigger issue was how bad a stylistic fit he was for Arsenal and, and the poor quality of the squad he had at that time. But the language barrier, barrier thing made for a, a good headline. I also remember there was a story about Alan Pardew imposing an English-only rule in the Newcastle dressing room when yes. about half their team was French at that time. Mm. Uh, I remember Pochettino, who, of course, now is the, the English media darling and speaks excellent english and and when he arrives at southampton he has a translator with him for for the for the full season I, I went and researched who that was a guy called david salas who was brought in as a translator that was his sole job was to translate for michael Postino when he came over from Espanol to southampton i think what is more common though is that while there will be a translator and um, so you're saying ryan that ac molan have hired i presume this person's job is a translator they don't have like a football role that's purely their their job Christian Pulisic. Is that your understanding? Well, they would... Yeah, it's both, right? I guess. I don't know. Well, that well, that's the point I'm trying to make, right? So, for, for example, Marcelo Bielsa famously had a translator his, his entire time at Leeds United, but his translator, uh, a person called Andres uh, Clavijo, yeah. well, he was uh, he was an, an analyst. So yeah. he was already on the staff. So I think a lot of big European clubs, there will be someone on the staff, whether it's an, even another player, you know, who, who can come and translate for, for a manager or a, or a new signing. Maybe there's a staff member, an, an, an analyst, someone who even maybe works in the office of the club. I think most European clubs now are multinational enough and cosmopolitan yeah. enough that that is the solution. And very rarely will you have a translator being brought in solely to be a translator. And I do think, uh, maybe not a lot of the time, but at least some of the
1: time when you have managers with translators the would be a good example of this i'm not sure he necessarily has to have a translator like i feel like he speaks enough english and probably could get by i think there's again some level of i don't want to say the wrong thing i do also think it's a way to not have to do post-match interviews and not really have to kind of uh be as front and center in front of media or have the high expectations that you might have i think players have done that before without naming names i have seen a player claim to not speak any English uh, to a reporter whose question he didn't want to answer. Name the name. uh, Joseph Martinez. Uh, and And then the next question somebody asked him was like, about who the Braves signed. And he was like, no, nah, who they signed.
2: Tell me about it. Like, It's just like, okay, I see what you're doing here. So, yeah. Well, Messi does that as well, right? Yeah. Messi yeah. speaks like reasonable English. I'm sure I've heard him speaking English. Yes. And then, obviously, any interview, he just he, he doesn't span it. Well,
0: well, well, famously, not famously, but Zinedine Zidane refuses to speak English most of the time. I interviewed him. I asked him questions in English. He replied in French, which is a flex. I
1: like this. It is, and <laughs> I like it. It feels
2: very French, though. It's <laughs> just a French thing to do. The
0: one
1: thing I do still struggle with the idea of having a manager who doesn't speak, like, the national team's language, like sven Gorn Eriksson managing Mexico, and th- that one always struck me as odd, and I guess you're not really reliant on those big motivational talks, but I do think at halftime, there is something to having a manager who can clearly, effectively, and concisely convey instructions. I always felt like giving three specific instructions to the team was about the maximum that you can sort of like get through get across and have an actual impact and and i just i wonder about having to like have this you know it's the old joke about like you deliver this rousing team talk and then the translator says the equivalent of like fight and win and it's like oh that that's it okay i guess that's it like i can just see it falling apart a little bit or just not really having the impact and that would be the one where i do think it could be an issue that language barrier
0: Uh, Of course, we haven't mentioned the most famous translator in all of soccer. uh, One that uh, goes back a few years. Jose Mourinho, who was Sir Bobby Robson's translator at Barcelona. That's uh, how he got his start in the game. Weird. Uh, There you go. (laughs) Is that weird?
1: Yeah, I think so. Just that Jose being the translator, because I'm sure he had more like happy, peppy energy uh, as a youngster, but Mm. I do just picture sort of dour Mourinho now like with a scowl on his face translating in a very serious and... Kurt
0: sort of way you can't be you can't be dour when you're around Sir Bobby though he was the he was a ray of light
2: Taylor he was a ray of but light. That's, that's the weird thing about Mourinho and Sir Bobby Robson is Mourinho loved yeah. Sir Bobby Robson oh yeah like he's one of his icons and they're like the, the, the you know an odd couple you wouldn't really put them together mm. but it worked and there we go. It did, it did indeed. Thank I you very like much, Jay. Clay Wagner
0: Wagner, 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 Wagner and and Pulisic. North Americans not pronouncing their names correctly. are the oh, uh... British people are excellent for pronouncing. Martinez,
2: of course, famous.
0: <laughs> Touche, Joseph. Touche. Let's get one more question in, shall we? Shane Isner has been in touch. My wife just asked a brilliant question. Says Shane, no. "Why can't we lift one leg during throw-ins? Upper body strength isn't otherwise encouraged, you know." So Joe, why not lift the leg? Why not throw it differently? Why not
3: just, you know, cannon it in with one arm? Yeah. Cause it illegal is, is, the, <laughs> is the answer to this question. I think there's a fascinating conversation and I don't know how much of this we're going to get into about like sort of why that might not be allowed. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I went into it a little bit and I have a couple of theories but to start with law 15 of the sport says that at the moment of delivering the ball, the thrower must. And then it lists a number of things. But one of the things in the list is have part of each foot on the touchline or out on the ground outside the touchline. So that is the rule. Now, why was this deemed necessary? Right. Part of it could be about controlling where the throwing where the thrower, excuse me, is standing. Like that is my overall thought. There have been lots of rule changes throughout throwing history. Graham Taylor, you're welcome for the one on one idea. Um, Shane and his wife have, have accomplished this very, very well. Tons of back and forth about where the thrower could stand throughout history. They could stand on the sideline. Then they could stand behind it. Then it was on or outside the line. And then, which is where we are now, it was both feet have to be on the ground, on or outside the touchline. And my thought is maybe players were exploiting the previous rules and, and maybe keeping like the back of one foot on the touchline and the other foot was inside the playing area to get an advantage. Or maybe there was some way that with you know one foot in the air they were extending far into the playing surface so that they were a little bit closer to the action. I, I don't know, right? I've never seen a game where this was allowed, but then you just tell them, well, you got to keep both feet on the on the ground, on the line or behind the line. It's, it's also possible that the spirit of throw-ins initially, and this also seems possible to me, was just to get the ball back into the field yeah, of play yeah. quickly. The, the tricky it. part with this is rugby, soccer, football, all these sports kind of branch off from each other, right? And from what my research says throw-ins in soccer started where the players would then line up sort of like in rugby where you have to toss the ball in from the side when it goes out of play or there's I, I don't understand all of rugby but line up. They, li- they line up and then nobody does you. joke but then you throw <laughs> the ball in and that's like a whole ordeal that's like an out-of-bounds play in the NBA that's detailed that doesn't really fit the get the ball on quickly motivation that that could be part of the reasoning here so I'm not sure that I completely buy that explanation but I also wasn't born in 1860 so I don't have all the context but Those are a couple of the things that come to mind as far as the reasoning behind this rule.
1: I think it does make sense when you look at the original law of like you must... You know, like square up and you must be at a perfect parallel line to the the sideline when you throw the ball in. It feels very English, the people who banned rock music. Of like there are specific rules for how you take a throw. And I do think it was get the ball back in play, but then you're throwing it into one specific area of the pitch. And I think probably Joe, at that time, it was more like you just have like lines of people and it would be this chaotic scrum, and then whomever came away with the ball came away with with it. And I can see how slowly you evolve and loosen that a little bit so there's a little bit more flexibility. You're still getting the ball back in, I would say, more quickly because now you're just picking it up and throwing it back in from maybe five yards from where it went out of bounds and you can throw it at an angle. Uh, but I think that you then still have to have some limitation because if you're then allowed to lift one foot or maybe only use one hand, to Ryan's initial like point of the question – you're then like hucking that ball 70 yards down the field. And I think that sort of changes what a throw-in is yeah. meant to be. Uh, I do still love how often the actual rules of a throw-in are completely flaunted. Like the way people will take a throw-in by bringing it around their hip and then over their head is definitely not the form you're supposed to utilize. So I think there's still a lot of looseness with how this is called. But ultimately, the two feet on the ground just makes it so I think you can't throw the ball too far too often.
0: Unless you do a flip. Yeah.
1: <laughs> unless you do <don't> a flip
2: <laughs> of course where did that happen was that at the 2018 world cup the iranian player that did that yeah, at the 2018 so. that was fantastic that was one of the best moments of that world cup um yeah i think taylor's i think taylor's right whether it was by design or not i think ifab now in the 21st century is okay with ins just being a way of getting the ball into the pitch and you already have players who can rory dilap it straight into the box but if you allow people to throw on one leg and with one arm in theory you could have there would be players who'd be able to reach the box from about like 50 60 yards. Away, so I can understand why that would be a little bit farcical when throwing isn't really part of soccer, at least not for uh, for outfield players. I uh, I didn't know the answer to this question, and so I went down a lot of rabbit holes on Quora and Reddit, and people are very reliable. Yeah, of course, that's (laughs) exactly. And there was a theory that apparently the way that throwins are with two feet on the ground and two arms behind the back is is to like limit injury it's down to like player safety as well and um, i don't know how likely you are to be injured from I, throwing with one arm this is, the english. this is
1: the english i'm telling you graham like i think of middle school dances where like te- like teachers would you know like measure your distance with a ruler to make sure you were standing far enough apart that just feels like english society until like maybe the 1970s so i, I feel yeah. like that's what it is like there is a gentlemanly way to throw the ball in and mm-hmm. it must be done this way according to these rules and monocles yeah. must be worn
2: my, my, my teacher at high school used to measure the distance between me and the girl I was dancing with and I would take that distance, I would Triple it and go even <laughs> further away from the girl. Oh, look at Graham showing uh, up. I danced with a girl at school. <laughs> well, no, I danced within proximity of a girl, I didn't dance with, with a girl. But yeah, I, I think the injury thing might not be true. So it's probably just the fact that iFab quite likes the lack of impact on the game that throw ins currently have. We've well, stumbled upon
1: go. another one of Graham's wedding vows. I I promise to dance in the vicinity of you. That was a very sweet. Aha, I didn't even
2: Graham. have a first dance, just eliminated that possibility oh. entirely. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: true story goodness me one for another time mr and mrs listener thank you for that question the answer being it prevents anarchy apparently uh, to have uh, two feet on the ground when you do a throw in Uh, there we go list of questions complete thank you very much everybody for submitting patreon.com slash total soccer show for all our bonus content as well thank you very much indeed taylor rockwell for doing question answering my pleasure my friend thank you for selecting the questions thank you very much indeed graham ruthven Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Joe Lowry. Thanks. Aw, oh, thanks to you, Ryan. <laughs> Listener, thank you the most. We'll be back on the feed very shortly indeed. But for now, bye.